0: you're listening to the swim out podcast a show about the wonderful world of outdoor swimming
1: hello
2: fiona hi vicky Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Swim Out podcast, with Fiona as our guest presenter and contributor. Today, we span the globe, talking all
3: about the
1: environment. We meet the man with a passion for plunging into reservoirs.
3: And hopefully we can normalise it so it doesn't feel so weird. Because the first few times we went swimming was like, it was just so weird. It was like trying to walk down the high street of the city centre with a traffic cone on your head.
2: We hear about a rewilding project in London, which blends swimming, nature and rejuvenation.
4: And we'd like to have spaces that people feel that they can explore, but at the same time, managing how humans move through that space so that nature is protected and preserved and encouraged.
1: And we join a channel swimmer on a mission to save her local area.
5: When we're in the water, we become more mindful of the fact that when there's litter or there's pollution, I was really shocked by how much rubbish in certain parts of the channel you can come across.
2: And we drop in on a training project looking after the sea in Papua New Guinea.
6: To teach students basic marine biology and conservation, but also to instil a certain thinking so that they can then go back into their own communities or schools as guardians of the sea.
1: Quick reminder to you all to give us some likes and feedback, please, with your podcast providers. Rating the show on Apple Podcasts really boosts what we provide and helps more people find us.
2: Thank you, Fiona. So, Fiona and I have been friends for many years since we used to work at the World Service together and do weird night shifts and look at each other through, through the glass in continuity. And uh, so tell us a bit Fiona about how how come you're here what what's your passion for swimming
1: Well swimming's never really gone as a passion I've just I loved it from when I was a little kid when I learned to swim in rivers I was about 5 or 6 probably and uh, my dad taught me and then going into the sea in the Atlantic which was Baltic when I think back to it but you never really thought about that. You just shuddered for about half an hour afterwards (laughs) and then learning actually when I moved south to London to work at the World Service in fact I then went to Cornwall and swam in the sea there and it was glorious. So warm, I couldn't believe, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And that's just continued. Fantastic.
2: So swimming outdoors has always been a big thing for you.
1: Yes, I rarely have been into a a swimming pool with chlorine, apart from when I was teaching my children to swim and living in London, in fact. (laughs) I soon got them out of that, though.
2: Tell us then, Fiona, who did you catch up with this month?
1: Well, if you were listening to the first series of the Swim Out podcast, you might remember Callum McLean, a wild swimmer braving ice and Baltic temperatures to get his daily fix. Well, as well as being an ambassador for the Outdoor Swimming Society, Callum's also a keen environmentalist swimming into fast-flowing rivers to collect samples for a university laboratory that's tracking pollution in UK waters. The environment, of course, can mean many things to different people. The Cambridge Dictionary describes it as the air, water and land in or on which people, animals and plants live. So what does it mean to Callum Maclean? Although he's moved away now from my area of the Highlands, we caught up on the phone recently and he told me more about the projects he's involved in. It's interesting that the more he's been swimming, the more his ideas have developed.
7: When I think about environment, I think about just physically where I am. Whether that's swimming in a river, swimming in the sea, swimming in some of the lochs around here. But there's different things to think about. How to look after these environments for me as a swimmer, like am I doing the right thing when I physically go for my swim? And then, bigger picture access to these environments is great in Scotland, but a lot of other places maybe don't have the great luxury we've got here. Thinking bigger picture in terms of how we're actually looking after these places the water I'm swimming in, is it good water? what's going on upstream, what's going on downstream. These are all the kind of things I'm starting to think about. Maybe as I swim more and as I think about the world more and think about where I am, and these are all kinds of things that I think about.
1: We're quite lucky. You and I have grown up in the Highland. We've certainly grown up in an area that is essentially quite wild and not spoiled at all water-wise, but not mm. everybody's got that.
7: No, for example, when I'm posting up pictures online of places to go swimming... They are generally clean, nice, and they're not hard to find places that are, like, really good quality, easy access to the water. For me, that's just, that's just what I do. It's not a, you know, you know, It doesn't take, like, a big drive to go and find somewhere interesting and beautiful to go swimming. But that's probably not the case for the vast majority of people across the UK, because obviously most people live in cities, and I live pretty much in the countryside. And like you say, growing up in the Highlands, even places that are close to towns, lots of them can be generally quite clean and nice. And we should be aiming for something that everyone has the ability to access somewhere decent, good quality water to go for a swim quite easily, you know, without having to then schlep out, you know, miles and miles out to the countryside just to find somewhere to go for a swim.
1: Now I also understand that you collect water samples. What's that all about? What's it
7: for? It's not just me, but it's a bigger kind of UK wide thing. An organization based in Wales, We Swim Wild, are collecting water samples from right across the UK. So I've literally gone down the river with uh, bottles that have been cleaned, glass bottles, and I fill them up in the middle of the river, Tay, and then I package them up and send them off down to uh, a lab in Wales. Research is getting done there to try and map and work out the the spread of microplastics in our waterways. There's a whole host of potential pollutants in our waters, but microplastics are one that's not known particularly enough about the spread of. The plan is then to work out where the the spreads of these are across the uk see how clean our waterways are and then as part of that we can aim to lobby for governments to do more to clean up the rivers to put more legislation in place if that needs to be in place to keep the waters clean so i'm hoping that our scottish water is some of the cleanest in the uk but even if it is i think we've still got um, a place to play in bringing other people if our water is clean up to our standard and if our water is not that clean improving our standards so getting swimmers right across the uk can have that impact, could compare it a bit to surfers against sewage. So they're quite a big lobbying organisation now, and they've done really well in terms of getting different reps all around the UK to share their message and encourage people who like the water to monitor water cleanliness of beaches.
1: And what's the responsible way to get people connecting with the environment? I mean, really, up in the Highlands recently, certainly over the last two or three years in particular, we've had such an influx of visitors here that Mm. it does threaten a lot of the, the cleanliness of the waters around. How do you marry that up yourself?
7: As someone who grew up having a lot of access to the outdoors and learning what i would say is like the right way to go about doing things you know uh, when it's camping you know not dropping litter not really setting a fire unless it's you know definitely a safe place taking everything with you that you take out these things i would just do almost a second nature because i've learned them growing up but i think you forget that maybe a lot of people don't get that opportunity when they're young and form bad habits so i think it is education for people when they're young and getting people to love their environment whether that's your local river your local stream if you can get people to enjoy these places and appreciate them when they're younger i think it helps when they're older but at the same time you're talking there about a huge number of people come to the highlands and we've seen over the last year everywhere that's like a nice place that's easy to get to has suffered maybe from over tourism but it's also over tourism in terms of people coming there and they've got bad habits maybe that can be changed pretty easily maybe don't realise they're doing the wrong thing often.
1: And it is that one, isn't it? It's trying to get people to just experience a little bit of awe about what's around them. Appreciate the benefits of being outside and what's around you. I lived in London for years and I found woods, I found rivers, I found all kinds of things within the city. But again, as you say, it's that one of being taught awe about nature when you're young.
7: Yeah, often it's like just giving people the opportunity to discover that for themselves. As well as that, there's got to be a focus on people who live in cities, you know, getting them to find these little corners that you're talking about, find these little hidden gems of woodlands that are around them and getting the kids to appreciate that. A lot of young people spend so much time indoors these days, you know, in front of a screen and (laughs) everyone of every age is having to do it right now. You can see that a lot of kids would... You know, lose that connection to the outdoors and lose that appreciation for just the simple things that do make you feel awe. You know, seeing an amazing sunrise, seeing the steam rising off a river first thing in the morning, you know, hearing a bird, seeing an otter playing in the water. These kind of things that stick with you and make you think, wow, you know, the great outdoors or nature is a fantastic thing.
1: Now, you're also an ambassador for the the Outdoor Swimming Society. I think they've had quite a whack of new members lately, haven't they?
7: Yeah, particularly over the last year or so. So I almost see outdoor swimming as this kind of wave that's been growing and growing. And then last year, it was like the wave suddenly, you're noticing it, you're noticing this wave. I don't think it's reached the crest of the wave yet. I think it's going to get even bigger this year. And I think the Outdoor Swimming Society... What they've been great at is encouraging people at all levels and like helping to spread knowledge, how to do it, where to find places, how to do it safely, how to find other people to go swimming with. In terms of where to do it, it was almost too much of that last summer. They had We had to close down the Wild Swim map, which tells you a lot of amazing places to go swimming around the UK because of some places were getting you know hammered in terms of numbers of people turning up at them you'll often still get someone coming kind of up to you going, you must be mad, what are you doing? But it's not <laughs> unusual now to see other people doing it, you know, where you might have you might have been the only one going for a swim at a loch on a Sunday morning. Now there could be like 20, 30, 40 people doing it. And at your local beach, wherever you are, there's almost guaranteed to be someone swimming every single day, even during winter. And I think that's a brilliant thing. I think the more people that get into it, the more it's like a paradigm shift for people to see that anyone can do it.
1: Do you actively campaign to get
7: more people out? Not me personally as such. One thing the Outdoor Swimming Society are doing is campaigning for better access to outdoor swimming. If someone in the rest of the UK wants to make a place like a designated swimming area, put together a kit that helps you explain the process to go around doing that. Of course, in Scotland, in terms of access, we're lucky that we can go just about anywhere we want to because of the Land Reform Act but it's not the case in the rest of the UK. And I would really hope that we can get to a situation that's much closer to Scotland's access laws across the whole of the UK. And I think as one positive thing that could come from that is that places that do, you know, suffer from too many people visiting them, that those numbers can be spread about in a, in a wider place. Hopefully, once things go back a little bit to normal, some of the kind of iconic events, iconic swims that we put on and can be held again, hopefully, in the next couple of years.
2: Lovely to hear about the awe that you find in Scotland. I'm booked in for the Outdoor Swimming Society's Hurley Burley event, known as the fastest 10k in the land as it pushes you down the estuary in North Wales. I can't wait for that to actually happen.
1: The people who test the water, we swim wild, and surfers against sewage who campaign around our beaches have a new project called Million Mile Beach Clean. This is all about getting out there and collecting waste and rubbish. Also, if you haven't checked out the Outdoor Swimming Society's website, you are missing a treat. There are fabulous photos and plenty of information. You'll find all the links on our website at swimout.net.
2: attended a webinar with our next guest, I've been feeling more and more aggrieved at the lack of access to swimmable water. Unlike in Scotland and much of the rest of Europe, bathers in England and Wales are often met with anti-swim signage. I often find myself shouting at signs which say either danger or keep out and saying, what danger? Why can't I swim? Owen Heyman started soup the Sheffield Outdoor Plungers, in 2016, and the Facebook group now has more than 7,000 members. I spoke to him down the line and started by asking him how swimmers can enjoy this activity while minimising harm to the environment.
3: Like any kind of outdoor activity, it needs to be managed and people need to come at it with a sense of responsibility. And if we promote the activity, then promoting the responsibility goes alongside that, without doubt. And all of the kind of effort to increase access goes hand in hand with the effort to increase awareness and increase kind of the understanding of the responsibility that we have and exactly what that means. Obviously, we, we saw it. We saw a lot. But we still see a lot of damage of places and people not knowing how to respect the countryside or I don't even want to call it the countryside because it's often these are urban places as well, parks and green spaces. And people don't know how to behave or, or how to respect them. But that's just about education and, um, and instilling that culture in people and starting young. And really, we all know, the government knows that people need access to green space and blue space for their mental health, for, for well-being. And with that comes a responsibility. But then with that also, what, what's really interesting is talking about how the more people are connected to a place, the more invested in it they are. And then they become the defenders of those places.
2: So what made you start Sheffield Outdoor Plungers Soup?
3: I'd been swimming like in little tiny little streams and things that I would find when I was off on bike rides as a student in Sheffield. And I, I I also discovered the reservoirs and I saw all the big scary signs and was really put off. And I started kind of doing some research online and there was almost nothing, almost nothing that was critical of the idea that it's dangerous to swim in reservoirs. So I'd been swimming in a reservoir near to where I live. This is probably about five or six years after I'd start, moved to Sheffield. And I started swimming in Crooks Valley Park. It's a disused reservoir. It's like 230 years old or so. And I started swimming in that. Nobody swam there. This is a park in the middle of the city centre. Nobody swam in it at all. Everyone assumed it was full of shopping trolleys and needles and rats and all the rest of it. But actually, like, I was looking at the water and I was like, this water's really clear and I can see freshwater mussels. And so I started swimming there. And then that's basically when I set up the Facebook group. I thought we we kind of have a like a, we have a home in the middle of the city, Crooks Valley Park, and we'll base it around that. And I'll try and encourage people to come and swim with me. And we'll try and, I'll I'll share what I'm doing, which is going swimming. And I'll invite people to join me. And hopefully we can normalise it so it doesn't feel so weird. Because the first few times we went swimming was like, it was just so weird. It was like trying to walk down the high street of the city centre with a traffic cone on your head and just pretend it's completely normal. And that's kind of what it felt like.
2: You know, the webinars that you ran,
3: um,
2: have they really helped you to build your community? The
3: webinars have been really important. There hasn't been one place where this was talked about in a way that lots of people can join in. It was just so great to do that. And the one that we did about reservoirs, uh, swimming in reservoirs and rivers on Shaf on YouTube, you can look it up. That one had a thousand people join, which was the max we could have (laughs) because it was a free Zoom event and you, you can't have more than a thousand and then two and a half thousand people watched it within a week on YouTube. And I think there's just a huge appetite for understanding reservoirs in particular. And they really kind of spread out the idea and the thinking more across a national thing, you know, so it wasn't just a Sheffield idea.
2: Yeah, I think we've really Um, got our knickers in the twist with this in in England, actually. And I found a, a small bit of water in London the other weekend, and it actually had razor wire all around it. And it's like, what is this all about? How can this be so dangerous? And then you walked like 100 yards down the road and there was this little river with no, nothing to stop you jumping in there.
3: And technically, what, what's interesting is that the, the water companies have a... There's an act that basically means that they, they have to provide recreational access to their water and land. This specific act is written down in the 16 Reasons for Swimming Access in Reservoirs article that I wrote. So essentially, they really shouldn't have razor wire around it, especially... And, and where possible, they should at least have public footpaths around them and be open to any type of recreation that, that's fit for the place. And a lot of water companies will do that through sailing and fishing and boating, um, which all carry a higher accidental drowning rate, which is funny, but they would say, oh, but they have their own you know, insurance and, and all of that.
2: I wanted to talk to you about your work with the Outdoor Swimming Society.
3: I joined the Facebook group, started asking questions, read the guide, and through that, I just got quite passionate about it and especially the thing with reservoirs because there's so many around Sheffield because it just is one of those things where you just discover it and you're just like this makes no sense I literally can't find any sense in this it's one of those situations where I've kind of like never had a kind of discussion about it that I haven't won and I know that sounds really that sounds really arrogant but it but I but I haven't and I really want to like I'm someone who loves to test ideas to the nth degree and I would just love to really be challenged on this
2: and is there a thing called a splash mob
3: yeah there, there's often that there, i mean there, there have been um splash mobs like sparth reservoirs is, is a really interesting case study that was a, a woman called fiona weir which i just think is the best name for anyone involved in swimming and that's where they did splash mobs that people have been swimming at this reservoir for like 70 years and then they decided the canal and river trust decided to stick a bylaw sign up and tell people they couldn't swim in it anymore so they just carried on swimming all the way through and they did these splash mobs and I think they had a choir there and they I think they had a brass band and they did poetry and all sorts. But essentially they just swam. That was the most important bit is they just swam and, and there's often talk about mass trespass, you know, we need to do a big mass trespass, a big swim mass trespass. The the idea goes through my mind like every day and I and I think something like that might be good, but it'd have to be done extremely carefully in terms of water safety, in terms of not having causing damage to the environment. I mean, what what I've always thought with with Light Soup is it's like a slow mass trespass. You don't have to have everyone swimming at the same place at the same time. You know, thousands of swims over five years, but with thousands of different people trickling through into kind of public consciousness through social media, people sharing it, being open about it, people seeing it when they go out for a walk and seeing people swimming in these places they never saw them swimming before. I feel like that's more powerful than just one big thing, splash on the front of, of your local newspaper,
2: so do you feel you know, like you're winning,
3: Owen? I think slowly, um, slowly. I mean, one problem that, we, that we're having is, for example, like with media wanting to report on it because it's a really interesting story and they can see that, you know, we're really onto something. But then there's also a fear. Obviously, tragically, sometimes people, especially young people, do lose their lives in reservoirs. They drown in reservoirs. Three people a year drown in reservoirs, which is the same number as drown in baths in the UK, but they do drown in reservoirs. And, and media are afraid that they'll run a story that shows reservoirs swimming in a positive light or kind of shines shines a light on this kind of nonsense situation we're in. And then years, and then maybe later in summer, there'll be a drowning and people will say, look, this media company has promoted swimming in reservoirs. And so that it goes hand in hand, you know, access, responsibility, um, education about about water safety, all of these things have to go hand in hand. You kind of you can't just be pushing for access; you have to be pushing for the other ones as well. You know, I don't want to frame cycling as a dangerous thing because it's actually one of those. It's actually you know relatively safe, but kind of perception is that it's very dangerous. But that the health benefits far outweigh the risks, and all the and all the data is there to show it. And yet you know not that long ago people were worried should we be promoting cycling should we be encouraging people to get on their bikes to cycle to work on the roads if if people are going to die yeah. and now you know policy is pretty clear walking and cycling should be encouraged wherever possible which is great you know i totally support that but it just shows that there's this fear of accidents yeah they are accidents and and, and what's really what one really important part in all this story is there's an assumption by the public and by landowners and water companies. The reason landowners don't want to allow swimming is because they would be liable if people drown or get into trouble in the water. So this is a really widely held belief, and it's not true. There's plenty of case law that shows that a landowner is not responsible for people on their land, but there's just still particularly around water, not around anything else, not around walking, cycling, running, even rock climbing, specifically water, there's just a big fear of liability. It's just one of those culture, culture shifts that needs to happen, but no one wants to be that one. You know, It's like, why are there no out gay football players or things like that? Yeah. It's like, everyone's waiting for this to happen. Get over yourself. Um, it's a bit like that. It's just like, everyone's waiting for this change, but just no one wants to be the first. Yeah, it's I think it's like, sort
2: of starting to happen. I, I think people like you, I mean, I've got a reservoir really close to where I live and it used to be mostly for sailing and they would let us in to swim on sort of Mm. Sunday mornings and Tuesday nights. And often that got canceled because they wanted to do dragon boat Mm. racing. But now since lockdown that it's swimming, it starts at seven in the morning and ends at seven at night. And, And now we've even figured out how to get the sailing going the other side and it just took a bit of it just took a creative mind to kind of go oh okay we can do this what one thing would you like people in england to do to further this cause i mean what is there one thing you think we can do
3: there's two main campaigns to support and that is the right to roam campaign and the clear access clear water campaign the clear water clear access campaign is very well thought out that's run by british canoeing In the petition, it mentions swimmers as well. So it's about all water users. I think support that campaign. But I I do genuinely believe that writing letters and emails to landowners is all good and well, and it's an important part of it. But the most important thing we can do is is go swimming and invite people to join us.
1: It feels like things are definitely changing. If we had the right to swim in reservoirs, 2,000 more potential swimming spots would open up in England and Wales overnight. Owen urges us to check out Imogen Radford's blog for river-dipping inspiration. And Nick Hayes' Book of Trespass, as well as the Right to Roam campaign, are well and truly at the forefront of those championing for better access.
2: I did find myself getting very distracted by all the information and local projects and Facebook groups around these issues. And desperate, really desperate to go to one of the reservoirs near where I live in Walthamstow, um, which currently th- there's there's no 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 chance to get in. There's a very interesting article um, in this month's Outdoor Swimmer magazine where Simon Griffiths talks about how important it is that we keep on swimming in rivers. And in particular, he's talking about the Thames.
1: Um, And I think you went for a paddle in the Thames the other day, didn't you, Fiona? (laughs) Yes, I've got the good fortune to work in London about a week a month. And uh, I had taken this walk to the pub, the Prospect of Whitby, and uh, it's got a lovely shoreline in front of it. And the water just looked so inviting, I had to get the shoes and socks off and go in up to the knees. (laughs) It was lovely. (laughs) The East London Waterworks Park is a concept for a new park and swimming spot. The current site is nearly six hectares of concrete used as a storage area in the middle of a swathe of green space near the Olympic Park in East London. The group wants to transform it into a brownfield rainforest, offering people the opportunity to immerse themselves in nature and, in particular, water via wild swimming. It'll also showcase an environment-first, community-led approach to land ownership, transforming the way we think about green spaces. Vicky caught up with Abigail Woodman and asked how this project got started.
4: So the site was bought by central government to build two free schools. The planning application for those free schools was turned down and local people who'd been campaigning against the schools realised that there was an opportunity to get together to decide what we would like to see happen to the site. Um, We had a public meeting in September 2019 and things have just really taken off from there.
2: And what's your role in the project?
4: I am a director of the company that we've set up, uh, the East London Waterworks Park Limited, and I'm also of our decision-making meeting.
2: And what what is it about
4: this place that attracted you? It's a completely blank canvas. It is a slab of concrete at the moment, right in the middle of the Lee Valley, um, surrounded by green space. People have to move around it. And if we could open it up, tear down the fences and make it permeable, um, it will be better for for humans traversing up and down the Lee Valley, but also for wildlife as well.
2: And so you you aim to purchase this Bit of land
4: we do yes we'd like to purchase it for the community and own it on behalf of the community I think that's really important part of the project um, so that the community has agency over what happens to it that we can um, manage it with an environment first uh, ethos
2: and um, yes what do you mean by an environment first ethos
4: well I think so many open spaces um, are owned by say for example a council or the Lee Valley Regional Park. Um, And those bodies are strapped for cash. And so they use that land to raise money. Um, And that means the land isn't managed with the environment first. So um, if you're going to Bring, uh, run a huge event on a piece of open green space. The soil gets compressed, the wildlife gets dispersed.
2: How will the space, when it's um, done, how will it feel, how will it look? A, a,
4: a, a sort of sense of wildness, a sense that the landscape um, belongs to itself, um, not a space that has been tidied
2: and the swimming element of the project which i know is quite important
4: yeah the swimming um, swimming element to the project is absolutely essential so um, a a large part of the site um, is the old filter beds from the east london waterworks they've just been capped and we believe the actual uh, structure of the filter beds is still there they've just been filled in and capped with concrete we'd like to remove that concrete empty them and bring water into some of those some of the uh, petals of the filter bed um, and make a space for wild swimming Um, because what we don't have in Waltham Forest um, is a space for people to safely swim um, in open water
2: The site of the park is right by the River Lee and the River Lee uh, there's quite a lot of worry about the River Lee
4: and its pollution is this true or is it a scare story it's absolutely not a scare story I mean there are two aspects to the pollution the first is the pollution that you can see so you can see a lot of plastic a lot of sanitary towels condoms hanging from the trees and particularly after heavy rain Um, and that's that's not very pleasant. Um, But the second issue is the pollution that you can't see. um, And a lot of sewage is pumped into the river, um, especially when there's heavy rain. We know that's happening from Thames Water. Um, They're not, uh, they don't go out of their way to publicise it, of course, but we, we do know it's happening. So we want to give people that sense of adventure and freedom, but in a place that is designed for that very purpose so there's a there's a balance there i think between making it feel natural and designing it so that humans don't have a terrible impact on the environment
2: what an amazing project it's fantastic to see so many swimmers getting organized lobbying campaigning raising money and getting things done you can find out more about this project at elwp.org.uk and they're also on all the usual social media spots
0: Get in touch with the Swim Out podcast on Facebook and Instagram.
2: Next up, Halani Fulsham, a campaigner and truly inspiring person who I met while training down in Dover a couple of years ago. Over the last few months, Halani's embarked on an ambitious litter and plastic collecting mission in her local area. We caught up a couple of weeks ago and I began by asking her how she got involved in channel swimming
5: having grown up on a Polynesian island, I, I had to learn to swim really early on. Um, it's actually a requirement in school is to be able to swim and to tread water so that they can keep, you know, young people safe in the Hawaiian islands. And uh, so it's always been something that I've enjoyed and have grown up with. And interestingly enough, what led me to becoming a channel swimmer, I've always loved distance swimming, but I realized in order to get back into the sea, which is my favorite place to swim, I would have to wrestle with the colder temperatures of you know, the water that surrounds Britain. And so I thought I'll do a, a channel relay as a way to test myself. It was really about mastering the cold temperature and getting back to what I really love. Yeah.
2: So this episode is about the environment. What got you excited about um, environmental issues?
5: When we're in the water, we become more mindful of the fact that when there's litter or there's pollution. Going back to that relay swim uh, that I did back in two thousand eighteen, I was really shocked by how much rubbish in certain parts of the channel that I, you know, that you can come across. But even more shocking, I think, for me, especially recently. Um, that's caused me to be more active in in, in uh, collecting litter and taking an active role was, was the lockdown. I think the lockdown forced us to spend more time in the community that we live in. And in spending the time locally and walking around my neighborhood, I was also really shocked to see how much litter was polluting the streets. And that kickstart me into actually going out there i bought a litter picker i have you know really durable (laughs) hefty bin liners and uh and thought you know i'm out there walking anyway it's a great form of, of exercise um this is an easy way to make a difference at a really local level and
2: how much plastic did you collect
5: oh my gosh i so i have collected today about 70 bags of litter in total Of that, I would say uh, at least half of it um, was plastics. I could take a bag and just collect bottles, empty bottles, and bag after bag.
2: I know, um, and it's been horrible going to some, you know beautiful spots um during lockdown and just finding so much rubbish sort of scattered Mm -hmm. everywhere and so how do you stay engaged with these environmental issues
5: for me it's about really trying to make an impact just around me and my community i know there's some wonderful you know initiatives that people are taking on and, and um on a much broader level but i i think for me if i can just make a little difference every day i hope that that will count towards something
2: Oh, fantastic. And when you do your swim next year, will you be working plastic into it in any way, do you think?
5: As somebody who loves the sea, what we're finding showing up in our sea, for example, plastic bottles or plastic bags. um, But there's also impact that I'm discovering about, you know, for example, the fishing industries. There's a much wider network that is contributing to the damage that we see there so I'd like to position myself in a way to make the most of it and I think it's it's a great idea about how can I incorporate that into the swim.
2: Good luck with your swim next year and the litter picking (laughs) halani.
1: Other side of the world from the UK, efforts to mitigate damage to the seas are underway from a little-known island off the coast of Papua New Guinea. Back in the 1980s, the Cousteau Society visited the island of New Britain and noted how important it was to place the conservation of the pristine waters and corals of Kimby Bay in the western end of the island as a high priority. A site was built at the water's edge where scientists and volunteers could collate their findings but it was the children in nearby villages where the education started. Mahonia Nadari, or Guardians of the Sea, has been encouraging the local children, who are as happy in the water as on land, to look for signs of potential damage beneath the surface. When I travelled there recently for a scuba swimming trip, I was impressed by the scope of the project. Programme director Peter Miller shared some of the background with me. You have an NGO that's run a remarkable program of
8: marine conservation education, mainly school-based, reaching well over 10,000 students a year, and doing so for 20 years. Also, the facility has been a base for marine research, mainly with James Cook University researchers from uh, Townsville, Queensland. 20 years they've been coming up uh, doing research. There's 20-odd PhDs have been written here. And that means 20-odd years of ongoing monitoring and surveying of the local reefs. It's a remarkable situation, and it'd be lovely to see Mahoney and Adari continue its education programmes for another 20 years.
1: The program's education officer is Somme Jonda. As a local, native to the island, he was always fascinated as a boy by the sea and what it held for him.
6: I've always really been attracted to the whole concept of conservation that Mahoney and Adari puts out. When I was still in school, they captivated me with the stuff that they used to do. So what is
1: your main program trying to do?
6: It's to teach students basic marine biology and conservation techniques and whatnot, but also to instill a certain conservation sort of ethics thinking into their mindset. So... That they can then go back into their own communities or schools as guardians of the sea, which is what Mahonya Nadari stands for the The region is is known worldwide as as a very high biodiverse area, biodiversity hotspot, with over half of the world's hard corals just found within this tiny area. We try to instil conservation ethics into, into the people so that they know what they have in their own backyards. And once they take full ownership of that, then they'd be able to protect it more and it'll uh, continue from,
1: for generations to come, hopefully. <laughs> Peter Miller felt the prospect of getting children who are so at home in the sea to change their perspective to protecting the environment would be a daunting task. He needn't have worried. To be frank with you, when I first
8: arrived here as a volunteer and looked at the project, I panicked because I've never been involved in business or any, any kind of program that, uh, that I failed at. And I looked at this and, and it was daunting. I thought, no, I can't succeed here. It's too late. But I was lucky enough to be thrust straight into the classroom situation and teaching you know, 20 25 uh, young Papua New Guinea students about marine conservation. And we do ten sessions with these kids, and the very first session I knew as they walked out the door that we'd changed their hearts and their minds. It's the kind of thing that a passionate teacher searches for maybe once in every thousand students, and I had 25 out of 25, and it made me realise it's worth giving it a go. And if you don't succeed, so what?
2: (laughs) Encouraging news from Peter there. Sophia. Now, how can people find out more about the project?
1: Mahonia Nadari and it's just as it sounds it has its own website and you can also if you put it into YouTube you'll be able to see really some lovely shots of that Pacific Ocean. They were a bit worried that they were going to lose all their funding during the pandemic but they've managed to get some from the Australian High Commission so the fingers are crossed. And, and how was the swimming? Tell us about... Oh, swimming was just glorious. You know, when you go under the water, it's just life. You know, there are colours. The, it's the corals. They're just, it's, it really is beautiful. Probably one of the last really pristine coral areas in the world, I would say.
2: Thanks, Fiona. Um, we'll be hearing more from you as this series evolves. <laughs> time our theme is journeys and we have a new guest presenter Mikey Tees, whose voice you know from doing our announcements and who I trained in Dover with.
0: Hi Mikey. Hello Vicky. Hello Fiona. So do you miss Dover then Mikey? I do. Well I miss my swim family a lot. I made some truly lifelong friends there and the great thing about Dover is the shared wealth, Everybody I know that swam the channel had a different story and a different experience. And every channel swimmer is happy to share their story, aren't they?
2: (laughs) They certainly are.
0: So who are you talking to next? I'm going to have a cuppa with Sal Minty Gravatt and chat about her journey to becoming the oldest two-way English channel solo swimmer in 2016. And she tells me why she was awarded an MBE. Vicky, Sal has swam a solo every decade for the past 50 years and she has one book for this summer which will make it the 6th. Isn't that incredible? That that
2: really is quite a feat. And we'll also be talking about swimming holidays and travelling
1: down rivers. We're releasing episodes roughly every six weeks so keep an eye on our website and social media accounts And Hunter and Vicky are also appearing on the Marathon Swims podcast, so keep an eye out for that too, or even an ear. Until next time, swim out and swim safe. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Fiona. Bye-bye.